This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Last year, I went on an Anapanasati retreat. Um, it was led by Prakasha, and I'm very, very grateful for that retreat. Um, Anapanasati, so Anapana means in and out breath, and Sati means mindfulness. But what really attracted me to the retreat was that I'd heard things about it, that it was about the mindfulness of breathing um, leading to sort of an insight practice. So sometimes those practices are called vipassana. Um, But when we learn the mindfulness of breathing, um, we learn it initially as a sanata practice. So that's a practice um, that calms, that stills, that concentrates and integrates the mind. Um, But anapana, sati, um, was about leading towards insight into the nature of reality. And it's a 16-line teaching, and on line 13, it's sort of one of the key lines in it, it says, contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe in, thus I train myself. Contemplating impermanence, I breathe out, thus I train myself. So, um, I found it interesting that the first meditation instruction that Sangharachata, that Bhante had, which was in 1945, um, it was from a Theravadan monk um, called Bhikkhu Sona. And basically Bhante had a book, a little booklet about Anapanasati. And he asked Bhikkhu Sona to explain it to him. So that was his first instruction. And one of the things that Bhikkhu Sona said was that it was the practice um, that the Buddha did on the eve of his enlightenment. So for some people, this practice you know, is a practice that can, they're inspired that it can lead all the way to enlightenment. Um, and in Bhante's memoirs, he says that he's very grateful for being <coughs> introduced to the practice. Um, because for some time um, it was the anchor of his spiritual life in 1945 and some years after. So when I came back from this retreat, um, I got a bit of a surprise because I looked up the Anapanasati um, teaching in the Majjhima Nikaya and discovered that it was actually an eight-page sutra and that the Anapanasati teaching was just 16 lines of that eight-page sutra. So I wondered, well, what else is in this sutra? And really this talk is about the first two or three pages of the sutra. So it's like the context um, of the Anapanasati teaching. So I want us to just take ourselves back two and a half thousand years ago, to 
to ancient India to the place where the Buddha gave this teaching. Thus have I heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying in Savati in the eastern monastery, the palace of Megara's mother. So the historical Buddha gave this teaching in a place where many disciples could gather and hear it. It was a monastery, it was actually a palace donated to the Buddha and his Sangha by his chief patroness. Now I was thinking, why can't she have her own name? Why does she have to be called Nigara's mother? <laughs> so I thought, well, the best thing to do when you read a sutra, sometimes it leads you to look some, up some other information. So I thought, I'll find out about Nigara's mother. So I'm going to tell you her story, and it is relevant um, to this talk, but I'm just going to start with a little story. So her name actually was Visaka, and uh, she came from a family who were followers of the Buddha. And one day the Buddha came to her town and gave a teaching, and she was only seven at this time, and her and her whole family and all the servants from her family um, became stream entrants. So at the age of seven, she was a stream entrant. Um, at 16, she was betrothed to be married into a very, very wealthy family. Her family had accumulated much merit. Um, and this family lived in Savati, the place where the Anapanasati Sutta is given. And so she was very rich herself. She was um, marrying into a wealthy family and she was a very accomplished woman. She was a stream entrant and she was very, very loved by everybody that she met. But her father-in-law, who was called Megara, um, he was a staunch follower of the um, naked ascetics. And he would invite them um, to the house for food. And Visaka found it quite difficult that he would never invite the Buddha and um, his followers. So one day, a Buddhist monk, um, on his arms round, came to Megara's house, um, and Megara pretended not to see him, and um, he just carried on eating his meal. And Visaka was, she was upset by this, and I think she used skillful means. She basically said to the monk, pass on, monk, pass on, um, my father-in-law is eating stale food. Now this really infuriated Megara because there he was, he was like a millionaire um, and he didn't want his reputation tampered with. And so he threatened to throw Visaka um, out of the house. Um, but because she was so well loved, uh, basically all the servants and her father-in-law's uh, advisors advised Megara um, that she was blameless and that she hadn't really done anything terribly wrong. However, Visaka said, well, I'm going back to my family. 
So Megara asked for, forg- for forgiveness um, and um, but basically Visaka would only consent to stay in the house if the Buddha if Megara invited the Buddha and um, his followers for a meal. So Megara reluctantly consented but he said he wouldn't be present. So that day came and um, after the meal the Buddha gave a sermon and Megara, the father-in-law, hid behind a curtain to listen to it. Um, and basically he was incredibly moved. He heard the Dharma, he actually became a stream entrant on the spot, <laughs> behind the curtain. Um, and um, he was very, very grateful to Visaka. And he said that I will respect you from now on as if you were my mother. In fact, I will call you Nigara Mata, Nigara's mother, um, because he felt so grateful. And his whole family, um, Nigara, the whole family and all the servants in that family, um, they all became followers of the Buddha um, after that day. And basically, um, Nigara, Nigara's mother, Visaka, she had many children of her own, but she always made sure that the monks and nuns you know, in the local area had their needs met so that they had food, medicine and shelter. And one of the things that she gave was a palace um, with beautiful gardens. And that is the place where the sutta, where the teaching, the Anapanasati teaching is set. So my point really of telling you that whole story um, is that the teaching takes place in a place of dana, in a place of generosity. Um, it is one of the conditions for the arising of insight. Um, our second precept, with open-handed generosity, I purify my body. Dharma is also the first perfection of the Bodhisattva. So we have Visaka, she's a woman of generosity um, and she would basically give wherever was needed. And the same applies to us here, this building, you know, we wouldn't be here without it. And it is here because of a whole history of generosity and human effort to both build this Buddhist centre and maintain it, and all, all the dharma that is put into um, this centre and why we're here, why we're able to be here. So, the Buddha gave this teaching in a large monastery. Basically, there was a large company of monks, um, and there were all the well-known elders, um, disciples of the Buddha, were present. And so there was Sariputra, there was Moggallana, there was Kashapa and Ananda. And for those of you who've seen the mural downstairs in the shrine room downstairs, the triptych, um, those four um, monks, well their arahats, are present plus Dharmadina. So they're all enlightened followers of the Buddha, disciples of the Buddha, and they're the arahats. So they are present. 
Now on that occasion, the elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing new bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing ten new bhikkhus. Some were teaching and instructing twenty, thirty, forty new bhikkhus. The new bhikkhus taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus had achieved successive stages of high distinction. So the Anapanasati teaching takes place in an atmosphere of generosity. So the elders are teaching, they're sharing, they're communicating the Dharma to the new bhikkhus um, and progress is being made. And it's said that the greatest gift is giving of the Dharma. So we've got a place of generosity and there's a flow of generosity happening. Um, And um, it's like one can directly teach the Dharma, but also the Dharma just is given in action through helpfulness, friendliness, and kindness. So with deeds of loving kindness, I purify my body. It's the first precept. So another reason um, why they're gathering in a monastery now on that occasion, the full moon night of the Pavarana ceremony, which marks the end of the three months retreat, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the community of bhikkhus. Then, surveying the silent community of bhikkhus, he addressed them thus, Bhikkhus, I am content with this progress. I am content at heart with this progress. So arouse even more energy to attain the as yet unattained, to reach the as yet unreached, to realize the as yet unrealized. I shall wait here at Sarvati for another month through the white water lily month for the Kamundi full moon of the fourth month of the rains. So in India, the rainy season or the monsoon starts at the beginning of June and it lasts about three months. So this is when the Sangha or the spiritual community have their rainy season retreat. They come together. But we celebrate our rainy season, as it were, our coming together of the Sangha on the full moon in November, as Pranyadevi was saying. So it was last Sunday, Sangha Day. Um, so this is partly why I'm giving this talk at this time. So for us, this is the beginning of the darkness and cold of winter. It's the time of year that we most confront death because the days are shortening and the trees are becoming bare. And in Sabuti's rambles last year, he said that the coming together of the Sangha was like transcending the cycle of the seasons, because the Sangha gives hope. So basically, um, it's as if it gives new life at a time when it's all going dark and there's a sense of decay. So as long as we've got shelter, and we've got warmth in the winter for us, 
Um, we don't depend on the weather in order to practice the Buddha's teaching. But what we can do is we can improve our conditions. So when it gets dark and depressing, um, we can make more effort um, to gather as a Sangha. So that's basically what Subhuti was saying, and I found that really um, interesting. Um, yeah, and we've just had a wonderful Sangha Day festival. So when it rains, the bhikkhus can come together and they take shelter in the monastery. And the Buddha is aware that the conditions are ripe for greater attainment. So he's really content with the progress that's being made by the community of bhikkhus. And he makes a decision at the end of the third month, really at the end of the rainy season, um, that they're going to stay on for another month. So it's the full moon night and they're actually seated in the open air which suggests that even though um, so that it's, it's not raining but they're going to carry, he's decided they're going to carry on their retreat um, because um, the conditions are ripe for more attainment. So he makes that decision to remain together collectively to deepen their practice on the basis of what's gone before. So he's putting good conditions for practice first before just doing what they normally do, which is a three-month retreat. So then the Pavarana ceremony um, usually concludes this three-month retreat. And it's a ceremony where they basically um, share and confess all their transgressions of the precepts, um, anything that holds them back in the Dharma life during those previous three months. So basically when you realize you've done something unskillful, you can acknowledge its harmful effects on yourself and others and you can share it, express regret um, and undertake not to do it again. Um, so that's the practice that we do, and they, would ha they had their Pavarana ceremony to do that. So it's interesting that following the Pavarana ceremony um, of sharing all this unskillfulness, it's the month when the white water lily blooms. And that month, um, it's named after the white water lily. And the white water lily is a symbol of purity. So with stillness, simplicity and contentment, I purify my body. So through the practice of stillness, simplicity and contentment, we can see our unskillfulness um, arising from our coveting of things, of people, of the way we want things to be. Um, and we can make amends if we've been unskillful. So in that way we purify ourselves um, in preparation for our practice going deeper. So the sutta continues. The bhikkhus in the countryside heard 
the Blessed One will remain right there at Sarvati through the white water lily month, the fourth month of the rains. So they left for Sarvati to see the Blessed One. Then the elder bhikkhus taught and instructed the new bhikkhus even more intensely. Some elder bhikkhus taught and instructed ten new bhikkhus, some twenty, thirty, forty new bhikkhus. The new, the new monks, being taught and instructed by the elder monks, had achieved successive stages of high distinction. So basically, word had got out that the Buddha's staying longer. Um, there's an atmosphere of spiritual progress, um, and it's, a, it's attracting more bhikkhus. It's attractive. So it's after four months of intense collective practice that the Buddha gives the Anapanasati teaching. But first of all, he's got something more to say. Oh, I wanted to also say, um, yes, we might be wondering, well, where are the monks? So all these, sorry, where are the nuns? All the monks are being attracted, but where are the nuns? Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, now on that occasion, the full moon night of the white water lily month, the fourth month of the rains, the Blessed One was seated in the open air, surrounded by the community of bhikkhus. Surveying the silent community, he addressed them. Bhikkhus, this assembly is free from idle chatter, devoid of idle chatter, and is established on pure heartwood. Such is this community of monks. Such is this assembly. So the first thing to say about this is that the Buddha is talking about the speech precepts. A condition for the arising of insight is purifying our speech. The community that he's going to teach the Anapanasati Sutta to is free from unskillful speech. Now you may have heard of the five precepts, um, of which one of the precepts is that you under, uh, undertake to abstain from untruthful speech. But there's also a list of ten precepts, um, of which four of them are speech precepts. And they include abstention from harsh speech, useless speech, slanderous speech, um, and um, untruthful speech. So... This company of monks are free from useless speech, from idle chatter. So all of their speech is helpful, it's got meaning, it helps connection with others, it's about friendship, it's about understanding the Dharma. It's never going to be gossip or frivolous. So it's a form of, com of truthful communication. With truthful communication, I purify my speech. The fourth precept. So this community of monks, whose speech is pure, the Buddha says are established on heart wood. So I wondered, well, what does this mean? 
So heartwood is the dense inner part of a tree, of the trunk of a tree, and it produces the hardest timber. So this is the heartwood. But interestingly, sometimes you come across the exact opposite in the Dharma. You have the Dharma described, um, the Dharma or the nature of reality or shunyata or emptiness as the opposite. So in Shantideva's Bodhichari Avatara, he describes um, how the self cannot exist. So he says, just as the trunk of a banana tree is nothing when split into pieces, in the same way too, the I is not a real entity when hunted out analytically. So what we think of as the trunk of a banana tree is in fact just a collection of leaf, leaf sheaths and they're wrapped around each other and if you hunt for the heartwood of the trunk by breaking, taking the leaves apart, you just get to empty space. There is no heartwood. So sometimes it's opposite. Um, there's a, a different use of the tree trunk in describing the Dharma. But here, in the Anapanasati Sutta, um, the Buddha says that the community of monks is established on heartwood. So it's very firm, it's solid, it's imperturbable. So there's a clue to what this heartwood is um, in the next part of the sutta. The sort of assembly that is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect, an incomparable field of merit in the world. Such is this community of bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. The sort of assembly to which a small gift, when given, becomes great, and a great gift greater. The sort of assembly that is rare to see in the world. The sort of assembly that it would be worth travelling for leagues, taking long provisions in order to see. Now I don't know if you recognise some of that, because it's actually in the T. Ratnavandana, the salutation to the three jewels, the verse on the Sangha. And in that verse, it basically says that there are eight types of people who are worthy of offerings and worthy of hospitality, who are an incomparable source of goodness in the world. And these eight people are, I'll just roughly say who they are, they are the three entrants, like Visaka, like Megara's mother. And those who are experiencing the, um, the fruits of stream entry. Then there's the once returners, um, who, and those who are experiencing the fruits of, of being once returners. So they've just got one more lifetime before enlightenment. And then there are the non-returners and those experiencing the fruits of being non-returners. And they will get enlightened that lifetime. And then there are the arahats, and those experiencing the fruits of being arahats. They've attained enlightenment. 
and they are like the elders who I described earlier who are teaching um, the new bhikkhus. So the heartwood of the spiritual community, they're either enlightened or they, their journey towards enlightenment is assured, their stream entrance. They've entered the stream to enlightenment. That's the heartwood. So in our hearts we see that a condition for our spiritual progress is that there are those who are further along the way um, than ourselves and that we actually need them. <coughs> so we recognize what we call spiritual hierarchy. That we wouldn't be where we are now without the noble Sangha, without those eight types of people. We wouldn't be here um, because the, the Dharma has been passed through the ages, you could say, by those eight types of people. So what we also discover in the Sutta a little later is that the um, not only is there the heartwood, the noble Sangha, um, but there's a whole other collection of bhikkhus. And you might recognize yourself in this list. Okay, You might be one of the, the eight persons. <laughs> um, fine, but you might also recognize yourself in this list. Um, so I'll just say who, who else was present. So there were bhikkhus who abide devoted to the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. There were bhikkhus who abide devoted to the four right efforts. Those who abide devoted to the five spiritual faculties. Those who abide devoted to the seven factors of enlightenment. Those who abide devoted to the development of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And finally, there were those who abide devoted to the mindfulness of breathing. So maybe you're there. Um, so we are receptive to the mindfulness of breathing. Um, we do it regularly at the centre. Um, but it's also an insight practice. And our development of insight is conditional, like everything else. Um, so it's de dependent on our ethical practice of the five precepts, five precepts, dependent on our practice of loving kindness, generosity, stillness, simplicity and contentment, truthful communication and mindfulness. Also, we're not separate from the Buddha who gave the teaching and we're not separate from the Sangha who we practice with and who we learn from. So insight is not about grasping a teaching and going off on your own to practice it for the rest of your life. Insight into the nature of reality is seeing its conditioned nature. Our ability to absorb and integrate insights into the Dharma are conditioned by our ethical practice and our connection to the Buddha and the Sangha. 
So realizing the conditioned nature of one's progress in the Dharma life and being receptive to those conditions makes one happy. So I'll just say that again. Realizing the conditioned nature of one's progress in the Dharma life and being receptive to those conditions makes one happy. In line 10 of the Anapanasati Sutta, it says, Gladdening the mind, I shall breathe in, thus I train myself. Gladdening the mind, I shall breathe out, thus I train myself. So there's one sentence that I just want to expand on a bit. Through my talk, um, you might have built up an image of the bhikkhu sangha in the presence of the Buddha, all practicing in this monastery, which was um, donated by Megara's mother. So the sort of atmosphere of practice and attainment um, it is bigger than the sum total of the individual parts. And the line that brings this out is, it is an assembly to which a small gift, when given, becomes greater, and a greater gift becomes even greater. So a small gift becomes great, and a great gift becomes greater. So to me, in a Pali canon sort of way, it, it's a sense of magic. Um, because something is arising um, that's greater than the sum of the individual parts. And a term which emerged on the International Order Convention in India this year, um, and it was elucidated by Sabuti, was the term Sangakaya. So you may or may not have come across this. Sangakaya. So Sangakaya comes into being when the coming together of the Sangha lifts any individual above themselves, beyond their individual self-clinging. So this inspired Sangha that is greater than the sum of the parts um, is a transcendental object. So this atmosphere where the gifts are being given, there's teaching being given, there's learning, realization, confession, um, more bhikkhus being drawn in, the Buddha deciding to continue the retreat for longer because there's progress made, it's lifting the Sangha um, out, up and out of its mundane self. So we can have like the Buddha as a transcendental object. So the Buddha can inspire us and lift us up and out of our small aims, you might say. But so can the Sangha. The Sangha, when it, um, become, when it is like Sangha So this, I think what's being described in the, the beginning of this sutta is an example of Sangha um, something a bit magical is happening and it's just sort of growing and flourishing and progress is being made um, and effort is being put in. 
So our meditative engagement with the 16 lines of the actual Anapanasati teaching is a bit like the transcendental subject. That's what's going on inside. Um, so it's the inner process, something greater than your individual self working through you as you practice and are receptive to the teachings. It's as if a pattern is unfolding within you that is bigger than you. So that's the transcendental subject. And then you've got the transcendental object, the Buddha and the Sangha, Kaya. So the transcendental object is drawing you beyond yourself and the transcendental subject is something that's unfolding within you that's greater than you, than yourself. And they're both really important for the Dharma life. So going within and practicing the 16 lines of the Anapanasati Sutta is just one side of the coin um, of liberation from self-clinging. We all need the Buddha and the Sangha as transcendental object. And we'll need to engage with the Sangha and be of service to building the conditions for others to practice the Dharma. As these elder bhikkhus are doing, they are teaching and instructing. So we need a context to practice unselfishness in a way. So we need a transcendental object like the Sangakaya to live out our inner realization, what's going on inside. So we need both. So I want to just finish um, with an example um, from my own, what I think is an example of this from my own life. So recently I went on a retreat this year, my retreat this year, my big retreat this year. Um, it was at a place that I'd never been before. And I'd heard lots about it, um, lots of stories, and I wanted to go there. It was the Women's Ordination Retreat Center in Spain called Akashavana. And I was on a retreat um, for order members. And this retreat center is in a remote place in the mountains. So however much I had heard um, about Akashavana, it couldn't have prepared me for the actual experience of being there. Soon after I got there, I was just totally overcome with gratitude. Um, I just completely fell in love with the place, both the natural environment, but also the retreat center itself. And what I really fell in love with was every time I saw how somebody had really taken care um, over something in creating this retreat center. Um, just small things like, um, uh, in fact, I'm not supposed to say much about this retreat center. <laughs> so I not say. It's a magic place. But I 
I found it, it really, really moved me. Um, just all these little acts of care that I could see around, around. And, um, yeah, I spent several days at the beginning of the retreat in a very open-hearted sort of metaphor state. Um, and it might have, the fact that the sky was blue and the sun was shining, that might have contributed to that. But I think generally speaking, it was just that I was, I was filled with gratitude and amazement, really, um, by this retreat centre. I just thought it was really incredible. And I likened it um, to Hercules pushing a boulder up a hill because it is high up in the mountains, like higher than Snowdon or... Um, it just felt as if um, a transhuman force had done it. I couldn't quite believe how it, how it existed. Um, it was a bit like magic being up there. So this retreat I was on, we were developing insight into the nature of reality. I found another angle on it. Um, and whatever insights that I might have had on that retreat, they would have been conditioned um, by my 23 years of practice. But a very, very strong condition um, was the retreat itself um, and the <coughs> retreat centre. So it was the company of the order members that I was with, practising with. It was the leaders of the retreat. It was the organiser. It was the cook, of course. Um, and it was the retreat centre itself. Um, all those who'd had the vision to just find such a place, all those women who had fundraised, everybody who'd given money, um, those women who oversaw the building project, those women who live there and maintain the place and develop the centre, and all the, all the different women who've been part of um, teams supporting retreats and many, many different ways, countless ways that people have helped to create this place. So it's basically, it is bigger than the sum total of its parts. Um, it is definitely like a small gift becomes great and a great gift becomes greater. Um, it's got an energy of, it, of its own. So you can't separate the inner realisation of a retreat from the conditions, and in this case, of being in a remote and beautiful retreat centre. And with the Anapanasati teaching, you can't separate any realisation that may arise from the practice from the context in which it was given. And it was given in the context of a vibrant Sangha practicing in the presence of the Buddha. So I'm just going to finish with a few lines. Gladdening the mind, I breathe in. Contemplating impermanence, I breathe out. Contemplating impermanence, I breathe in, gladdening the mind, I breathe out.
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.